Antonio's smile was a little mischievous as we waited for the infamous subway. I had voiced my hesitation about the subway in Mexico City to him, but he assured me that my worries were misguided. Just stay out of the last car, he said as we stood on the platform. It's for people who like frittage. Good to know, I thought to myself. My father stood beside us on the platform, also wearing a slight grin. Aging and sometimes a bit hapless, I have to admit that he does have something of an intrepid spirit. It seems that from him I inherited my love of travel, equally balanced with a safety-first type of common sense I inherited from my mother. At any rate, I could tell my father was up for an adventure and, even though this was my second time in Mexico City, it was the first time I had ventured out this far into the dark corners of it, looking for something that is every bit as infamous as it is intriguing. Funny that my guide was an American. Having lived in Mexico City for a number of years, my friend Antonio has managed to take on a Mexican persona of sorts. We met while studying for our PhDs and became fast friends during one of our school seminars in Northern California. A big guy with a large red beard and pronounced thick-rimmed glasses, he is one of a few people I know who I would call authentically eccentric. I mean this as a compliment, as he carries a dignified, been-there-done-that air with him wherever he goes. A drug-fueled haze of experimental punk rock to a writing degree from Harvard, it seemed to fit him exceedingly well, that he would find and marry a woman from Mexico City, then make his life there. His whole story has a William Burroughs beatnik feel to it, for sure, minus, of course, the accidental murder part. The train stations were a cacophony of sounds and a blur of constant movement, but I was surprised by how clean and efficient they seemed to be. The train, when it finally arrived, seemed modern, well-designed, and surprisingly fast. Within two stops, it seemed that we had arrived in a completely different part of the city, and a completely different part of the city than the touristy area my dad and I were staying it was, to be sure. We stepped into the warm sun and the dry air to what seemed like a tent city of sorts, with stands lining both sides of the street selling everything that one might need for, well, anything. I would find out later that these people generally don't sell anything uniquely Mexican, but rather are there to hawk even cheaper goods imported from China. There was also a confluence of multiple cooking smells that my friend admitted, even after living in the city for a number of years, he steered clear of. So much for my Anthony Bourdain-style romanticizing of local street food, I thought. We walked for about 15 minutes around Mexico City's crumbling infrastructure of cracked sidewalks, piles of trash laying on the streets. There were no dead dogs that day, Antonio pointed out. To a side street lined with old apartments. The amount of looks we were receiving was a bit... unnerving. My father and I were wearing polo shirts and our tennis shoes looked new. Antonio's clothing seemed to fit in better. It was his white skin that stood out to the locals. We walked down the street quickly. Antonio stated that we should keep up a good clip as standing around invited thieves. Within a few moments, however, Antonio pointed to the left toward what looked like a makeshift closet with a figure inside. She was encased by a stiff sheet of clear plastic that Antonio touched briefly after kissing his hand, paying his respects. She was surrounded by large goblets of tequila and various other objects like a dark-skinned baby doll dressed in an outfit dedicated to cannabis, all that hinted at a story of a mysterious figure, revered by many of the city folk, born out of an appreciation for the darkness, as it must be the light's eternal companion. She gave the suffering of Mexico City a new voice, an authentic avenue to channel the dark energy of over 20 million people, most who live in dire poverty. This episode is about the search for the cult of Santa Morte.
In 2016, I had an idea to take a trip back to Mexico City. The timing seemed right. I had recently learned that my father had begun to take his studies into shamanism more seriously and had listed the pyramids of Teotihuacan as a place he most wanted to see. Luckily for me, Mexico City was relatively close and inexpensive, and taking him there seemed to make for the perfect gift for his 63rd birthday. I had a couple of other reasons to go as well. I had become simpatico with another one of my fellow PhD students, a gentleman named Antonio Primavera. We met at one of the week-long seminars that Sofia University hosted in Northern California, and I was instantly intrigued by his research. He lived and worked in Mexico City, and his stories about city life there were fascinating to me. At the end of the seminar, I made a commitment to him that I would make it down to Mexico City before too long to visit and let him show me the city from an insider's point of view. Lastly, I wanted to return to Mexico City because I have always been drawn there for some subtle and intuitive reason. In 2005, I traveled there with my ex-wife to witness the celebration of Dias de los Muertos, a holiday that seemed like a combination of Halloween and some kind of Saint's Day rolled into one, where the people openly remember those who have passed on by building shrines to their honor in their front yards, dressing up, and reveling in a carnival-like atmosphere. The holiday peaks with the family spending the night with their deceased loved ones in the graveyard, lighting up the night sky with hundreds of soft-glowing candles. On my first trip to Mexico City, I was fortunate enough to make friends with the bellman at the hotel, who arranged for one of his friends who was quite familiar with the city to drive us to a little-known neighborhood where Dias de los Muertos was still celebrated the traditional way. Looking back, this could have been a sketchy situation for sure, but the bellman seemed trustworthy, and the gentleman who drove us around, one Senor Castaneda and his wife, turned out to be gracious and extremely knowledgeable. Ever since then, I have yearned to go back. To me, Mexico City is an enigma. With a greater metro population of over 20 million people, it has always represented the most dichotomous aspects of city life, with the super-rich and the influential living and working next to the most desperate and hopelessly poor. Years ago, when I was in middle school, one of the more interesting geography textbooks I was given, one that represented different countries in different ways, including bright colors, or by physically representing their size according to the country's population, I spent hours poring over the numerous different ways the authors chose to show the world as traveling to these far-off places captured my imagination. I remember that the book represented the entire area of Mexico City with small black lines over it. The key to this symbology explained that it meant that the area was considered a slum. This did little for my young self and my desire to help find an identity as half-Mexican by finding something about the culture that I could be proud of. Since that time, Mexico City has always been in the back of my mind as something dark, familiar, yet exotic, dangerous, yet inviting. It's as if, in this side of the world at least, Mexico City is unabashedly full of life, yet equally willing to show you all of the scars and blemishes of cultures colliding to create what we know today as the Mexican people. I saw this idea visually represented in a mural at the Museum of Modern Art where, with the faces of a native Mexican in profile, facing that of a Spanish conquistador. A powerful image, for sure. Everyone knows the reputation this city has. Riddled with crime and corruption, many who fall on the more racist side of things consider this place a cesspool of humanity. One of my father's friends told him to, quote, be careful out there when he learned where we were headed. Normally, this would be good advice when traveling anywhere, I suppose. But his tone seemed to imply a fraternity trip to Tijuana, fueled with cheap tequila, seedy brothels, and various other forms of vice. What seemed to be missed was the hundreds of years of culture and the best and purest forms of Mexican expression in anthropology, art, literature, theater, and, of course, food. 
What would Mexicans be without food? Admittedly, this was the part I was most excited for my dad to experience. The best way to make quick friends with him is to feed him. One time he got so excited when I took him out for barbecue for a birthday some years prior that the waiter noticed and pointed it out, much to my amusement. Another time when he was visiting Jessica and I for dinner, he went to serve himself a second helping of her famous lasagna. As the second piece was bigger than his first, I offered to cut it in half for him. What makes you think I only want half of that? He asked in a snarky tone, again, much to my amusement. Here again, however, Mexico seems unique in its food culture. While there are certainly many high-end restaurants for Mexican cuisine, the best Mexican food seems to come from the streets and the treasured recipes handed down from each mother's kitchen to her children. If this is an any indication of Mexican culture, then it seems like the best of it is hidden in the small corners and personal stories of those who inhabit it. While there are many impressive sights to be seen there, the hearts and souls of the Mexican people are what continue to haunt me as I was drawn back to this place. My father and I spent our first evening in Mexico City walking around the neighborhood, taking a walking tour described in a funny little book I had ordered entitled Mexico City, An Opinionated Guide for the Curious Traveler by Jim Johnston. One of a number of self-guided walking tours, this one followed some of the major streets from the Zocalo Plaza de la Constitución, or the city center, just a few blocks from where our hotel was located. There was some construction going on at the time, and a number of places around the Zocala were blocked off, making approaching the center of the plaza difficult. My father and I wandered around the plaza for a while before embarking on one of Jim Johnston's walking tours by exiting the plaza to the south. While my father is not elderly in the typical sense, keeping an eye on him was something that kept me occupied, as Mexico City is infamous for random holes in the sidewalks, some that break the legs of unsuspecting pedestrians, I'm sure. There were enough people on the sidewalks that we did not stand out too much as we moved out of the more touristy area and into the general neighborhoods. I did my best to find the streets that Johnston mentions in his books, but some of the landmarks seemed a bit more difficult to spot than I originally thought they would be. We were looking for a taco stand called El Iroquito, literally translated to mean hole in the wall, I'm told. But the day of traveling had begun to set in on me and I was yearning for a place to actually sit down and enjoy a beer, perhaps, with my father. We settled on a corner restaurant with a nice patio where a number of people were eating. I should have known by the menu, any restaurant that serves more than two or three styles of food can't be good at all of them, that this wasn't exactly what we were looking for. But it was okay. I was having trouble finding the places mentioned in Johnston's books. One place that had the same name as a restaurant he mentioned, known for their mole, told us they didn't serve mole there. I blame my own sense of direction. After dinner, we continued to walk down Calle Regina, a street closed to car traffic and a nice walk before coming back into the busier part of town. Humorously, we passed El Irquito 
three times before realizing that the taco shop, known as the best taco in Mexico City, was literally just that, a small taco stand crammed into what looked like a closet. Admittedly, a very clean closet with well-dressed workers shuffling around each other. Meat, carved off of a spit, sat in front of the shop. A short, well-groomed man greeted us. I took a few pictures of my dad conversing with him in Spanish, then had my dad explain to him that we saw their shop in the book I had with me. The short Mexican grinned widely and gave me the number one sign with his hand before explaining to my father that we eat first, then pay later. If there was any one time that I was irritated I had just come from a meal from another place, I will admit this was it. My dad and I ordered a few tacos al pastor to try. We were certainly not disappointed, and the title of best taco in Mexico City seemed apt. They were delicious. Both my dad and I lamented that we couldn't eat more of them due to our biological limitations. We should come back here and get our fill some other time, my dad said between bites. I nodded in agreement. Unfortunately, due to the time constraints of everything we wanted to do on the trip, we never made it back, and my dad hinted around returning to the taco shop a few times on our trip. Those damn tacos haunt my father and I to this day, and I have made a secret commitment to getting back there and stuffing myself silly. Someday. We walked to the Mercado San Juan, also recommended by Johnston as a stop, but found ourselves too late as most of the stalls had closed and left for the day. We had to sneak in through the loading dock in the back to get in as regular doors were closed and locked, but no one seemed to mind. On our way out, a quick and pungent odor as we walked by a room full of dead animal carcasses being skinned quickly reminded me of the reality of keeping 20 or so million people alive. Countless others had to die. I didn't get a look at the animals, but I remembered the sight of their fur stacked on top of each other, and of course, the smell. We walked a little further, continuing to follow Johnston's directions through an old Chinatown part of Mexico City, which was just as he described. Few Chinese people and a few restaurants. My father and I walked on to the end of the walking tour circuit, described in the book, to the Palacio de Bellas Artes just a few blocks from our hotel, where they host opera, ballet, and concerts. The building, described by Johnson in his book as a wedding cake, looks just like that, artfully and deliciously decorated in both French and Mexican Aztec styles. We tooled around in public areas here for about half an hour, taking pictures of the murals and artwork, before eventually heading back to our hotel for the evening. We had a tour bus to catch early the next morning to see the mysterious monuments I had seen first in 2005. The next morning, a large tour bus picked us up in front of our hotel around 7 a.m. I was curious how the bus would maneuver around the tight streets of downtown, but where there's a Mexican, there's a way. My dad and I were able to grab a quick breakfast from the free buffet in the hotel lobby, and I was able to tip a very grateful waiter who blessed us with his good wishes for our adventure that day. The tour bus lumbered through a number of streets, picking up different people at different hotels for about an hour or so, giving us a new look at the streets of the city. We eventually found ourselves at a hostel where the tour guide told us we could use the restrooms if we liked, 
and also grabbed some pastries from the panaderia on the corner. When we asked someone in the hostel where the banyos were, he pointed up. At the top of what seemed like six or so flights of stairs was a public bathroom, shared by those staying in the hostel that reeked of orange fabuloso. We received some curious looks from young European tourists in various states of waking up, washing their clothing, eating breakfast, and nursing hangovers. Back on the street, the tour guide, a pleasant and knowledgeable Mexican woman, told us that it would be about another 30 minutes before we left again. So my father and I wandered over to the 7-Eleven on the corner and bought some coffee and pastries. We chatted while standing on the sidewalk as the sun began to heat up the city streets. A few minutes later, we were on the bus again and on our way north, out of the city, and toward the Teotihuacan ruins, which are located about 35 miles away. My dad and I chatted as we passed the Neza Chalco Itza slums that lie just outside the city proper, otherwise known as the Lost Cities. One of the biggest slums in the world and home to four million people, the painted shanties, stacked on top of one another, conjure images of the famous fabulas of Rio de Janeiro, only bigger. Hastily constructed concrete structures with tin roofs tightly packed together, organized in an oddly beautiful, almost perfectly symmetrical grid of very straight streets, belie some of the most desperate conditions in the city. Again, I was reminded of the suffering of this place, and how it is the constant companion of all who come through here, as the squalor of the festering city is never but one step away. The city began to thin out as we made our way north, with green expanses opening up to the final destination, the pyramids of Teotihuacan. As the bus made its approach to the site, I pointed to up to my father, who turned around in the cramped bus seat to see the back of the Pyramid of the Sun, the third largest pyramid in the world, as it loomed over us blocking out the sun for a brief moment as we drove past. Over the bus speaker, our guide told us various facts about the site, including the fact that it had been abandoned for roughly 700 years before the mighty Aztecs stumbled across it, annexing the site as their own. This fact only served to pique my curiosity by adding to the mystery and the almost scary archaic nature of the place. The sun was beginning to heat up the earth and dry out the air, and the bus was kicking up dust behind us as we drove closer to the park entrance. We stopped with our tour group for an obligatory explanation about some of the handicrafts that were being made by vendors outside of the park. A young man who hosted the tour groups was more than happy to let us sample some mezcal and dared my father to eat the worm, which he did with little hesitation. If you don't know by now, it is mezcal, not tequila, where the infamous worm or moth larva is found in Mexican spirits. Mezcal has seen a resurgence of sorts in Mexico City, it seems, with its roots in what feels more artisanal and authentically Mexican. Blame the hipsters there, I guess. Needless to say, the Marth larva has no special significance in Mezcal other than to intrigue tourists like ourselves. My dad seemed to be enjoying himself. The tour guide led us through a gauntlet of vendors that lined the dirt road leading into the pyramid site. We entered through one of the many entrances, making our way into a temple where our tour guide gave us a quick explanation of some of the more interesting details of the archaeology there. After a short while, our tour guide released us to explore the site ourselves. Issuing a challenge of sorts to my father, I proposed that we climb the impressive Pyramid of the Sun, to which he hastily agreed. We walked down what is known as the Avenue of the Dead, the dirt road leading from the Pyramid of the Moon, past a number of temples to the biggest one, which sat off to the left. I'll admit, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Few realize that Mexico City rests above 7,000 feet, and the air here can catch you off guard pretty easily. 
In true 5280 style, however, my father lumbered up the pyramid step by step with me in tow, as if I could somehow catch him if he were to fall backwards. It was a false sense of security. A few rest stops along the way, and we reached the top, where a number of people were sitting and chatting, each enjoying one hell of a view. We took some pictures and my father, to honor his newfound shamanistic sensibility, decided to place a small stone he had brought with him on the top of the pyramid and leave it there as an offering. He did a quick ritual, then buried the stone in a crack under some other stones and some loose gravel. It was a polished stone, smooth and with the color of ivory and amber. It was sure to be picked up as a keepsake if discovered by someone, especially a child. This was the point, he explained. What intrigued him the most was wondering where the stone would end up as it continued its own adventures through space and time. This was the perfect chance to give it back. Back at the bottom of the pyramid, we negotiated our way through a throng of vendors who seemed to have the privilege of being able to sell their wares inside the park instead of being forced to set up shop near the entrances. My father purchased a funny-looking apparatus that the seller was using to make incredibly realistic jaguar sounds for the grandchildren, while I bought one that mimicked an eagle's cry and one that, when cupped by the hands correctly, sounded like the song of a hummingbird. We ran out the rest of the time walking the Avenue of the Dead before grabbing a quick lunch at one of the restaurants that was included with the tour fee. Back on the bus, we traveled back toward the city, this time to make our way to Basilica de la Virgen de Guadalupe, a religious shrine built to honor a Mexican peasant sighting of the Virgin on his cloak in 1531. The basilica is also surrounded by a number of other churches, all which surround a large plaza. On this evening, however, I had neglected to take into consideration that I had booked the tour on the first Friday of the month, or what is typically payday for Mexicans in the city. This created a tremendous amount of traffic as it seems everyone in the city was going out to party, clogging the city streets, especially in the popular parts of town. Our tour bus, which had already arrived to the Basilica Plaza late, only became trapped in traffic as the sun began to set. My father and I, tired from the day's excursion, eventually asked to be let off the bus a few blocks from our hotel rather than wait another hour for it to crawl the remaining distance. We tipped the guide and the driver, then jumped into the evening crowd in front of the Bella de la Artes building from the day before. The next day I had made arrangements to meet up with my friend Antonio who promised to show us around a bit while on our visit. A resident of Mexico City and a fellow transpersonalist, he was knee-deep in his research on the enigmatic cult of Santa Morte, the patron saint of death. An admitted devotee himself, he had come to respect this folk saint through his day-to-day -day experiences in the city. My father and I had some time before we met Antonio, so we grabbed some breakfast at the famous Sanborns down the street where he was excited to eat mole for breakfast, something he had never done. We grabbed a taxi that took us to the Museo de Antropología, a very impressive museum dedicated to the pre-Hispanic history of Mexico and Central and South America. My favorite has always been the mystery surrounding the giant African-looking stone heads of the Olmec. 
We explored the museum for a couple of hours before making our way across the street to Chapultepec Park, one of the largest green spaces in a metropolitan area in the world. We were in luck as it was Saturday morning and the whole park had a carnival feel to it. The countless tents of people selling all manner of trinkets and food seemed to amuse my father to no end as we walked by each stand. We bought and shared some sort of sangria-like drink in a large plastic cup that I saw some other people carrying around the park, then walked up the hill a ways so I could show my father Castillo de Chapultepec, or the castle that is now a museum at the top. Back in a cab, we went back to the hotel to await Antonio, who was to meet us in the lobby. After about 30 minutes, the lobby called to let me know that my visitor had arrived. Antonio was seated in the main lobby, and I could see his bald head and thick glasses from our room. He had put on a little weight since the last time I had seen him, but carried it well on his large frame. We exchanged an embrace. It had been about four years since I had seen him, and a typical what's up brother type greeting. I had had a feeling that my father and Antonio would become fast friends, and I wasn't wrong. My father, usually suspicious of most people, seemed to warm up to Antonio almost instantly. We chatted for a few minutes in the lobby where he gave me the lowdown on his dissertation progress and vice versa. The sheer frustrations, the small victories, something we had bonded over since we had met at school, seminar. Antonio had made mention of taking my father and I to see the first erected public shrine to Santa Morte, but for some reason I hadn't taken him too seriously. Before I knew it, the three of us were on our way to the subway station. Riding the subway here was something I certainly didn't have the guts to do the first time I had visited, but my father was up for an adventure, and Antonio's very odd proposition seemed intriguing. I will admit that I was kind of anxious when we climbed on board the subway for the first time. As we got on, Antonio discreetly pointed out a young Mexican man who had cut him off and was now eyeballing all three of us. I think this guy wants to start something with me, he said under his breath. Maybe, I said. I pointed out that all three of us were twice the young man's size, so he better know what he was doing. I also got my blade, Antonio said with a slight smile. It was then that I recalled the switchblade that he had shown me once at seminar. He explained that in the neighborhood we were traveling to, he sometimes had to scare off thieves. He would hold his hands up when they approached him saying, Tranquilo, tranquilo, which translated means something like, please stay calm. He would act like he was reaching for his wallet along his waist belt before coming back, quickly, with an Italian stiletto. Most would-be thieves would lose interest after finding themselves on the business end of this gringo's knife. It was just another one of those interesting things about him. Antonio pointed out some views from the train of the active volcano that looms over Mexico City as we pulled out of a tunnel before quickly diving into another one. It took less than 15 minutes before we reached our destination. Barrio Tepito, although I did not know it at the time, has a reputation as one of, if not the roughest, neighborhoods in Mexico City. Antonio moved his large frame quickly around the numerous tents of vendors selling cheap Chinese goods and onto a street which led around a decrepit park that might have actually been nice once, before we reached some old apartment buildings, one with a mural of three Mexican boxers painted on it. That's what Tepito is known for, breeding fighters, Antonio pointed out as we walked by the mural. I could see that, I replied. As we approached the shrine, we seemed to be attracting the attention of some of the people milling around on the street. One older man, intoxicated off of God knows what, approached us. He was carrying a plastic grocery bag with what looked like a tall boy of cheap beer and seemed to be asking Antonio for a cigarette. Antonio quickly obliged the man as a friendly gesture and the two began to chat casually. My father and I looked around the shrine and a makeshift tent that was set up beside it where an altar and a place to light candles was placed. There was also a clear plastic box with a slit on the top to donate money if one so chose. 
I kept one ear on Antonio and one eye on my father as he tried to take some pictures. Quite suddenly, I heard Antonio's voice perk up as he greeted a small woman. She was older with dark skin, cleanly shaped eyebrows, and some very warm wrinkles around her face. She also had a distinctive thick line of white in her otherwise pitch black hair. She smiled at Antonio a lovely toothy smile as the two of them began to speak to each other. It seemed that our trip to Tapito had yielded more than we bargained for. This was my introduction to the mystical Enriqueta Romero, locally known as Donna Queta. Calling Doña Cueta the High Priestess of Santa Morte wouldn't be quite right. Like most things regarding the cult of Santa Morte, Doña Cueta's role in the cult is not easily definable. Easily the most regarded living figure associated with Santa Morte, Doña Cueta lives an incredibly humble life. She was returning from the local market with some vegetables when she happened upon us near the shrine and recognized Antonio from his request for interviews as part of his research. As they chatted, Antonio, not without some pride, unbuttoned his blue shirt and slid out of half of it, exposing his white undershirt. He lifted his sleeve to reveal a tattoo of Santa Morte he had had done. Donna Cueta, obviously amused, smiled widely as she looked it over. With our association with Donna Cueta now buying us some street cred, I began to let my guard down a little bit. Antonio introduced Donna Cueta to my father and they chatted for a bit in Spanish. I would find out later that Antonio had expressed his condolences about the passing of her husband some six months earlier. She had thanked him, my father told me later, but reminded him that her husband was always with her as she cupped her hands delicately over her heart. She had a very peaceful and nurturing quality about her. Later, as I reflected on our visit, it would occur to me why she was so revered as the chaplain of the first public shrine to Santa Morte. Her energy was instantly disarming, which is not something one might expect when visiting Ground Zero for a so-called death cult, in the roughest part of town, in one of the biggest cities in the world. Feeling more comfortable, I asked if I could get some pictures of the three of them standing together, to which Donna Cueta readily agreed. She then kindly asked my father to put the camera he was wearing around his neck away for our protection. Her friend Leora had so completely set us at ease that we had almost forgotten where we were. We stayed for a short while while Antonio continued to chat, his arm tattoo on full display to the neighborhood hangabouts and random devotees who approached the shrine to make offerings. Later that afternoon, the three of us rode the train back downtown near our hotel where we sat and sipped some mezcal and ate some tacos. A sort of reflective mood seemed to have come over us, as if we had just come from visiting a guru on a mountaintop or a shaman hidden deep in the dark rainforest. The next day we met up with Antonio and his wife, Lupita, as he promised to take my father and I to the canals of, and I will not pronounce this correctly, Zoclimico, where the waterways date back to Aztec times. We rented the services of a brightly colored raft and the young man who piloted it to take us around the canals to some sites that Antonio had wanted us to see. 
We had a good time eating snacks while Antonio told us about the book he was writing about Santa Morte and the band he used to play in before attending Harvard to study writing and literature. Lupita also gave us an interesting history lesson on the Mexican Jews in the city, a group to which she and her family proudly belonged. The diversity of the city struck me. While we had a great time on this excursion, it was a brief stop on a small island located on the canal that was one more oddity worth mentioning. A farmer living there had started an old habit of picking up dolls that had washed up on the shore of his property, presumably dropped into the water from tourists and day-trippers' children, and displaying them around his property. As time went on, he acquired a good deal of plastic baby dolls, which was added to by people stopping by and giving them to him and his family as gifts. What resulted is one of the creepiest examples of dark folk art I've ever seen. Hundreds of baby dolls in various states are displayed between a number of old wooden structures interspersed with other oddities like striking paintings of La Herona or The Weeping Woman, a scary bedtime story that even Mexican-American kids usually heard when their parents wanted them to obey. The place was unsettling, although I did get my dad to smile in one of the pictures against his instincts which told him to flee. The visit there seemed to represent, again, the strange tension between the light and the dark that had become so fascinating to us. Meeting Donna Cueta and Santa Morte up close seemed like a revelation of sorts, a beacon of hope and acceptance to the most marginalized of the city's wayward souls. In her seemed to be a perfect balance, an interplay between what we aspire to be and the full acknowledgement of who we truly are. As a rich person or as a poor one, we will each face our own death. In this way, it is the experience of death that is, ironically, the most fundamental and unifying part of our humanity. It has the power to divide us as we kill each other over resources and political abstractions, or unify us as we come to terms with our collective suffering and face it together, understanding that we are never alone. A quote from Antonio's book reads, It is only because of death that life has meaning. Santa Morte invites us to explore the darkest parts of ourselves, to make friends with them, and enter into an intricate dance where we celebrate our wholeness as people. In no other place does this resonate for me the way it does in Mexico City. My father and I left the next day with the hope that we would return to explore more of the city and to finally get our fill of those delicious tacos. Thanks for joining me on this trip. This is the first of two parts. The second will include an interview with the author and dear friend, Antonio Primavera, where he will discuss his book on Santa Morte and the Mexican death cult. Links to his book and the guidebook by Jim Johnston will be on our website, psychologyafterdark.com. Also on the website, you'll find some pictures of my aging and sometimes hapless father and I tooling around the sites mentioned in this podcast, including our meeting with the benevolent and wise Donna Cueta. Dr. Jessica is currently on assignment, but will return in two weeks, and we hope to see you then. Adios. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. 
The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Dark Side by Chill Carrier, both provided by Gemendo.